live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Rabbi Hirsch, welcome back. Two countries this time. You're really making up for lost time during COVID. <laughs> Can't seem to get you in London. All in one week. That was that was Italy and Poland this week. Well, there was a, a wedding in Venice to whom this series is dedicated. And then four days in Poland with a uh, post-Hasmo and uh, Menorah High Girls School and Rabbi Yossi Cohen. So, yes, it was a very busy week. Thanks for popping by. <laughs> so just want to recap the main points that we left off with. That was Venice 1 last week. This is the second and final installment on Venice. So the Jews moved to the area near Venice in the 1300s. They're initially allowed onto the island and then they're expelled because of their money lending activities. So in 1513 they return and three years later a ghetto is created for them in which they live for the next I believe 350 350 years? I mean, we'll get to the exact date, but you could say 1866 was the end of the ghetto. Yes. Right. And you also mentioned that the word ghetto was born in Venice. Yes, uh, although probably with a soft G, originally Jetto, um, the foundry there. Uh, it's also important to remember from last week that the Venetian Republic, which was a small empire in many ways, put money above religion. They didn't completely void Catholicism, but money was extremely important and that was very helpful to the Jews. In terms of the ghetto itself, being locked in at night, the day began with the opening of the gates, guarded by the Christian sentries, and then the inhabitants were called to prayer in the mornings by a a knock on the door at which time the rest of the ghetto came to life. But by 1541, the overcrowded ghetto was home to Italian, Provençal, German Jews, each with their own shawls and customs. However, there is now increasing pressure on Venice to admit the Levantine, the Eastern Jewish traders, because Venice is no longer dominant in the Mediterranean. And if they want to access Ottoman ports, they need to grant equal privileges to Ottoman merchants uh, accessing theirs. So having little choice in the matter, the Venetians open a second part to the ghetto. On that point, I was actually stopped in shul this week on Shabbos that someone wanted to know. Where were the rest of the Jews? You mentioned the 20 or so bankers that were dealing with money. Right. Where were the rest? Were all the Jews moneylenders or? No. Okay. So in the older ghetto, they had small loan shops. Uh, The first one starts in 1516, the uh, Banco Rosso, the Red Bank, there was a Green Bank, there was a Black Bank. And they were allowed to trade in secondhand clothes, in schmutters. And there were these stalls all over the main ghetto square. Um, that was the sort of the German, the Italian Jews, whereas the new ghetto was occupied by 
were effectively international merchants, traders. So you're saying the Jews were asking to be admitted there? Yes, it, it's important to understand that we see the Venice ghetto in a different light to other ghettos. It's something that very few people realize. Although, like all Jewish matters back then, it was more complex than that because of the church. Many, possibly most, of the Levantine traders were actually originally Svardim or Portuguese who had escaped Catholic control. And they fled to the Turkish Empire where they could pick up Judaism properly, officially, openly. And that meant that whereas they and their parents, ancestors, had lived as new Christians, in many cases were born, so to speak, officially as Christians, now by practicing Judaism, they were, by church law, heretics. They are liable to the death penalty. But at the same time, they are now Ottoman subjects and protected by the empire. So for Venice to prosecute them would not only ruin an important source of commerce, which is important, but also risk war with the Turks. So they turn a blind eye to the irregular status of these new ghetto Jews. And as the years go by, it becomes basically an open secret that more and more of Venice's Levantines had never actually come from the Ottoman Empire. Some journeyed directly from Portugal. Others may have lived for a while as Christians in Florence, Rome, Ferrara. But fortunately for them, since a very large percentage of the actual, the, the real Levantines spoke fluent Portuguese, the church reported that it was impossible to separate true Levantine Jews from their Portuguese co-religionists. Now, it's true, a few of the conversos took the precaution of actually changing their Western dress for the uh, robes and turbans of the Easterners, you know, as their ship docked in, in Venice. But others didn't even bother with this minor pretense. However, even with the acceptance that existed, it was still an anxious time. In theory, the Pope, who changed from, you know, decade to decade, could bring pressure to bear on Venice, and these Jews could be burnt at the stake. This was happening at exactly this time in Spain, in South America, even in Italy itself. And... It is now that the most famous Levantine merchant of the 16th century comes into his own. His name was Daniel Rodriga. In 1577, he submits a business proposal to the Venetian government to build a port on Venetian-owned land at Spalato, which is nowadays the town of Split in Croatia. And his idea was you divert trade away from Ragusa, which today is Dubrovnik. And Ragusa was not under Venice's control. And from Ragusa, the trade used to go to Ancona, the, the chief rivals of Venice. So now if you build your own port, it would also shorten the sea route to Venice across the Adriatic, which had lots of pirate activity. 
and it promised great benefits to Venetian commerce. And of course, the investment would be supported by Jewish merchants. And of course, once again, what he was really after was guaranteed residence for new arrivals. So he comes up with an ingenious legal strategy to get around the Murano problem. Jews arriving from any of these countries in the West would not be identified by country. All of them would be lumped together as Ponentines, which means Westerners, the opposite of Levantines, which means Easterners. And you wouldn't go into details about where they possibly could have come from. Maybe they were once new Christians, but it's sort of impolite to ask, really. And they now have a new name. And that way you could legally create a charter allowing them to live in the ghetto. So you say on the face of it, it seems just to be a, like a tax-efficient maneuver, I guess. Yes, but actually his intent is to save lives. Amazing. So initially, the business proposal is rejected by the government of Venice. He doesn't give up easily. He tries again two years later, 1579, because he's convinced, correctly as it turns out, that the financial arguments would eventually sway the Venetians. He tries again four years later in November 1583. At that time, it appears that the five members of Venetian board were themselves merchants and they didn't want competition. In other words, the refusal wasn't religious. So Rodrigo just waits till the board members change. And finally, he gets there in 1589 and he inserts a paragraph which stipulates that once they are part of the ghetto, these Jewish merchants can live securely without being investigated by the, the, any of the officers of the secular authorities of the church as long as they live in the ghetto and behave as Jews. So the ghetto becomes a, a type of haven for escaping Jews, although, of course, it was restricted by the numbers that could physically fit in there. You couldn't have 50,000 people in Venice, but for hundreds of people, it became a place of safety. So in 1589, Venice was the place to go to be safe as a Jew. How safe was it? Okay, so there'll always be some restrictions. So for the Jews of Venice, there is officially a 10-year agreement so there's a certain level of insecurity and it can be cancelled on a year or two years notice. Also, they're not allowed to own any property, even their own home. So they are temporary citizens. And there is a repeated mention of the obligation of Jews to wear a cap of a certain colour to be instantly recognisable, which demonstrated the government's desire to prevent any kind of social mixing that we touched on last week between Jews and Christians. But all in all, it was an opportunity. Just shows the state of Europe in those days, if that was considered a haven to go to. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And these sudden reversions to Judaism include merchants of note at the Spanish court. They'd come to Italy change their identity, move into the ghetto. And one in particular, a guy by the name of Rodrigo Mendes de Silva, was the official historian for the rulers of Spain. He arrives in Italy at the age of 60. He undergoes circumcision, brismila. He converts, 
He takes the name Vyakov and he marries a girl of 18. Um, but records show that he went to synagogue quite infrequently. And as a result of all these people coming, the early 17th century is a time of economic productivity in the ghetto. Trade is thriving. And in very typical Italian style, the ghetto produces individual during the Renaissance period who were talented in both the religious and secular fields. By example, there are many. Sarah Copia Sulam, who was born in Venice in 1592, educated in both the Jewish and Italian worlds, spoke a number of languages, uh, ancient Greek, Latin, Hebrew. She's a writer. She's a poet. She's familiar with the works of Aristotle and Josephus. I mean, you know, imagine what we are describing. This is a woman. This is 400 years ago. She's living in a ghetto, yet she's educated to the point of being able to defend Judaism in writing. And she marries a guy called uh, Yaakov Sulam. And since they both loved the arts, they invite into their home Jewish and Christian writers, poets, artists. And she has an ongoing correspondence with a monk called Ansaldo Siba, who wanted her to convert to Christianity. And in fact, his desire for her to convert to Christianity becomes, through the writing it very much appears, that he fell in love with her. And he told her that if she converts, after death, they'd be united in heaven. And her name, her second name, Copia, which means a pair or a couple, is spelt with two Ps. And he says to her that this is an indication that they should become a couple. Now, he's a Catholic monk and she's married, right? Mm -hmm. um, and from the moment she gets that letter, she starts spelling her name with a single P. In other words jump in the lake um, and the pair never met in person but their correspondence was published many years later possibly centuries later so that was one of her achievements or one of her adventures then there was uh, Bonifacio who was a prominent Christian cleric and in 1621 he accuses her of not believing in the immortality of the soul which was a, a serious accusation and could have resulted in trial by Inquisition. And in response, she publishes a work defending her point of view, attacking him. And she writes at times very sarcastically, and she produces a vehement defense of Judaism. And she dies in 1641. Her tombstone on the Lido is still visible today, and it was written the text by Rabbi Leon de Modena. Last week you mentioned why don't people go to the Lido? So if people know about her, they would go. I'm not sure it's the type of place that would necessarily go and daven, but it definitely is an inspiring individual. Imagine the amount of tourism that will be coming to Venice in the coming months right, after this podcast. Right, to the Lido. <laughs> and another individual, I mean, as I said, there are many, but Rabbi Luzzato who is born in Venice around 1583 into a wealthy Ashkenazi family because Luzzato, despite the pronunciation, is of German, not Italian origin. And this is over a century before the Ramchal, with whom obviously he would be family. He 
spent his life mainly in Venice. He was the Rav of the Ashkenazi synagogue there. Um, we don't have evidence of any travel, so it's possible that he literally spent his entire life in Venice. He was a scholar, and he also studied mathematics, literature, philosophy. And we have recently discovered his will, which is dated June 20th, 1661, although I think he died two years later. And it provides an overview of his life and his family. In Hebrew, he wrote Mishan Mayim and an introduction to Kehelis, as well as a number of halachic responsa, including one dealing with travel by gondola on Shabbos as you can imagine, was a relevant question if you lived in Venice. What was his conclusion? He was actually lenient on the matter, and he was relying on an opinion from one of the Rishonim. And he also published two major works, Jewish works, but in Italian. One was a political piece written for non-Jews, which actually prevented the expulsion of Jews in the 1500s from Venice and was used subsequently by Rabbi Menashe ben Yisrael to get uh, the Jews into England about a hundred years later. And the other book was a philosophical dialogue about the values of Judaism. So that's all the first half of the 1600s, trade and intellectual output. The second half of the 1600s is a very different story. There had been a number of long and difficult battles with the Turks, the Venetian treasury was drained and the Jews had an enormously increased tax burden put on them by the Republic, which would end up bankrupting the Jewish community in the 1700s. And uh, in addition, the ghetto merchants suffered from the interrupted trade routes when there's a war going on. And at the same time, Venice and the Papal States created closer ties, which was never good news for the Jews. So that by the time you get into the 1700s, the early 1700s, neither the wealth of the Svardim nor the fleets of ships were enough to alter the ultimate destiny of the Serenissima. It was dried out by its wars against the Turks, and it gradually went into permanent decline for anything but uh, the cruise ships docking in Venice in the 21st century. It, and that, that was it till now, from then? Basically, it, uh, yeah, it fades. The Ottoman Empire becomes more dominant, regains a lot of the territory, or gains a lot of the territory that uh, was once in Venetian hands. And yes. Yeah. So the shuls we see today... Oh, they were lived in. No, no, no. They're Jews there all the way through. Mm. But as an empire, right. as a republic, it is in decline and eventually disappears. Wow. I want to ask you a bit more about the ghetto. Religiously, what was life like there? I mean, you, you mentioned, for example, Sarah before. She sounded uh, quite a colourful, open-minded individual. Just wondering what the religious levels were, if you could describe it to us. So, first of all, you have at least five separate shawls with five separate customs, Levantine, Spanish, Italian, Provençal, and German. And there were at least two other shawls, uh, the Kohanim the and the Luzzato shawls, although they were probably places of learning, of study, rather than of prayer per se. So there was 
a complete infrastructure and a lot going on. But the new Christians have an effect on the ghetto. You could call it uh, aftershock or reverberations, I guess. In fact, if you walk into the ghetto today, you will see a visible warning on the wall of the ghetto area, dated uh, September 1704, which forbids any Jew who has converted to Christianity to enter the ghetto under any pretext. And if they disobeyed, they would be punished with prison, the galley, or the lash. And in fact, informers would be rewarded with a percentage of the goods confiscated from the converts. And the severity of this warning gives an idea of the attempt to stop something that clearly existed, which is a type of Murano. There were Jews who saw baptism as a way out of the ghetto, but still would have had family ties to their former life and therefore, you know, wanted to remain connected. But even for the majority of new Christians, those who remained completely within the Jewish community, the struggle wasn't over because these newcomers had not grown up with a a functioning Judaism, obviously, and they had a, a fundamental lack of knowledge and understanding and would read their own interpretations into into mitzvahs, into commandments. And these would be heavily influenced by Christian values and concepts because that's how they had been brought up. But that would have been the case from 1541, I guess from 1589 onward. From the time they first are sort of legally allowed into the ghetto, you mean? It was more of a, um, maybe a private issue is the way to put it during that century. It's the 1660s that bring it into the open because of a crisis which is brought about by the false messiah, by Shabtai Tzvi. Um, Few communities were as divided over Shabtai Tzvi as was Venice. And it was made worse. It was exacerbated by the visit to Venice of his trusted disciple, Nathan of Gaza. Is that because of uh, such a variety of Jews living in such so tight of a space? And coming from such broad backgrounds and mm. very different backgrounds. So Shabtai Tzvi created a movement of expectation of the imminent arrival of the Messiah. And although it's opposed by a number of rabbis, it becomes very popular throughout the Mediterranean because there are centers where former Moranos live, I guess not just in the Mediterranean. You have, um, I don't know, Salonika, Livorno, Amsterdam, famously, uh, Venice. And the message of Shabtai Tzvi is eagerly received because it struck a chord with those who had been through the, so to speak, misery of the life of forced hypocrisy. They wanted to atone for their Christian past. They were very enthusiastic about the arrival of Mashiach. In fact, there's a record from a a Jew living near Venice, which covers the end of 1665 and the beginning of 1666, the main 12 months of the activity of Shabtai Tzvi. And he describes the congregation to be in a state of messianic excitement. And he reports what he saw, that even the, the Christians were in a state of agitation, 
to the extent that the Venetian authorities demanded explanations from the Jewish elders. And when the Jews feigned ignorance, because the last thing they want to do is say, you know, we might actually (laughs) be uh, going home and the rest of you will be shown for what you are. So they say, you know, we know nothing. Um, The (laughs) magistrates told them that they knew full well that uh, Jews had news which they wanted to conceal. It's a bizarre Uh, situation. Yeah. Europe was, not just Jewish Europe by any means, was fully aware of of Shabtai Tzvi. You you have accounts from diplomats, from merchants, non-Jews across the continent. And, And, you know, they said to the elders of Venice, you have got amongst your congregants illiterates who can't even pray and they are now diligently studying with rabbis and the rabbis are teaching them for no pay and they are Christians who are converting to Judaism apparently the Inquisition had arrested four French people in Ferrara who declared that the only true religion was that of Moses and there was uh, there was a rumor that a cardinal in Rome had told the Jews to rejoice because the Messiah was coming so there was a lot going on. And at this point, the rabbis of Venice write to the rabbinate of Constantinople, who were much nearer the center of what was going on. And they sent this letter, not by ordinary mail, but by special courier. We have it preserved. And they inquired both for news and for guidance. So it's written in March of 1666, which is before Shabtai Tzvi's arrest in Constantinople becomes a fact. And in the letter, they write the clash of opinions. And I quote, everywhere you can see groups of people discussing the news regarding our redemption. Some are firm believers. Others have doubts. It's fascinating what you're describing. I mean, this is pre-tabloid days. This is the first fake news, really. And it's sweeping over Europe and everyone's getting involved. And they're also more naive then. Well, it's a case of... The streets of Venice are alive with this information as they are in Amsterdam. It's the talk of the town. And this letter, when it goes out, it, it's signed by the, the rabbis, the heads of the main rabbonim in town, including uh, Rabbi Moshe Zakuto. The only one who does not sign is Rabbi Shmuel Avohav, who we know from other correspondents had rejected any idea of Shabtai Tzvi being anything real. And he himself, Rabbi Vav, was of Murano origin. He kept a cautious stand, even though he rejected Shabtai Tzvi, because on the one hand, he feels that an, a mass act of truva of penitence would be of benefit to the people. And he is unwilling to go to war against this false messiah, but he doesn't want the ghetto irreparably divided nor does he want the non-Jews to accuse them of fermenting a revolution. It's quite short-sighted, though, a mass act of chuva. It's inevitably going to end so and have a backlash. Eventually, they will do something about it. It's just at the time, had you just told everybody to go about their business as normal... You'll be too unpopular. You'll be lynched. Right. When one of the other rabbis in Venice writes of the excitement of this being a potential time for Mashiach's arrival. And he says that he no longer sits on the ground during Tikkun Chatzais, during the midnight devotion. 
because he considers the present time to be a time of grace, meaning maybe it isn't Shabtai Tzvi, but this is a time which is apposite for the arrival of Mashiach. And he writes, you know, I've heard that in Constantinople they didn't say any of the prayers, any of the kinos for the fast of the 10th of Teves, you know, and not to speak about what they did in, in Smyrna, in Izmir in Turkey, where they didn't fast at all, and he's very uneasy about that. But everybody is talking about this. The Christians are curious or uneasy, you know, what's going on in the ghetto. Maybe he is a true messenger. And to stir up matters even more, Nathan of Gaza, the, the Robin to Shabtai Tzvi's Batman, travels to Venice in 1668. And he knew that most of the rabbis in Venice were against him. So he walks right into the turmoil just before Pesach. And uh, subsequent to his visit, both sides, pro and anti, tried to capitalize and each circulates their own version of it. According to the Sabbateans, the rabbis were afraid of Nathan of Gaza and tried to prevent his entry. Whereas an account from Baruch of Arezzo tells us that the rabbis pronounced a cherem, a ban of excommunication, on anyone who would allow Nathan of Gaza into his house. And only Rav Shmuel Avoav went to see him and informed him that he would not be admitted, to which Nathan replied that he was on a divine errand and he was on his way to a certain place on behalf of the whole congregation of the Jewish people, which was presumably a reference to his intention to proceed to Rome and get an audience with the Pope. And he stays in the ghetto for about two weeks, and he's cross-examined by the rabbis, who couldn't prevent believers from associating with him. And he signs a letter while he's in Venice, where he retracts some of his beliefs. But in a letter to Caleb Cohen, one of the leading Sabbatean believers, he writes that this signature is null and void because he said it was extorted from him under duress. So you've got, you know, two versions of what happened. And the Venetian rabbis now bring out a long letter in April 1668, banning all adherents to Shabtai Tzvi and to his ideas. By then, he has already converted to Islam, remember. Well, I would say remember, but we haven't actually done the podcast on Shabtai Tzvi. Get there. You need to remember to do it. Right, Yes. And they even banned activities such as penitential exercises, I guess we could put it, you know, extreme tikkunim, because they were a characteristic feature of the movement, and they are banned. So getting back to the point that you mentioned earlier, now they weigh in. And they demanded that all documents relating to the movement be destroyed to obliterate all memory of this shameful episode, which is mentioned by Rushmolavov in a Truvona responsum about eight years later. But the believers, they wanted to carry on. So the movement doesn't die out. It just goes underground. And partly as a result, the authority of the Rabonim suffers a decline. It was, in fact, a damaging episode in the ghetto's history. And ultimately, I guess you could say that Shabsai Tzvi movement caused a lot of harm to Italian Jewry and to many other communities. It contributed to the danger of apostasy amongst disappointed believers, and it exposed the Jews to the hostility of their Christian neighbors. We touched earlier about what happened afterwards, meaning when did what happened with the Jews from then till now? 
So when did the actual ghetto come to an end? Okay, so we said that the early 1600s was a very positive time. The second half of the 1600s, not so great. And the 1700s, especially economically, really goes downwards. In many ways, you could say that the ghetto came to an end twice. Because when Napoleon arrives to all of these cities in northern Italy, he tears down the ghetto gates. In the case of Venice, they were burnt in the Campo in 1797. And although replaced when the Austrians regained this territory from the French, the restrictions did not resume in full force and would come to a complete end by 1866, which is exactly 350 years from its construction. And this time, Jews are leaving the ghetto area, and it continues this trend until World War II. But the communal institutions remain in the former ghetto areas as they do today. You know, the mikveh, the shawl, the rabbi, the library. Okay, Uh, thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch. I think that's all we have time for today. Okay, I'd just like to mention that this Venice two-part series podcast is dedicated to Graham and Georgie, whose wedding we celebrated in Venice last Sunday. May they have much bracha and muzzle in their future lives together. So you were just preparing your speech, these podcasts, eh? (laughs) (laughs) That's right, absolutely. So that brings the two-part series to an end. What is next? So since we're moving towards the the three weeks and the nine days, we will be doing five broadcasts on the Holocaust. Nothing to do with that. It's because you're going to Poland next week and you need to to prepare for that too. (laughs) No, I will not be mentioning any of these things in detail. There's far, far too much detail. Don't have time for it while I'm there moving from place to place too much. But when they come back, they can listen to these things. Five broadcasts on the Holocaust. Yes, but we'll be covering three different topics and aspects of the Holocaust. Now, there won't be a podcast released next Tuesday because I'll be traveling then post-Poland to Eretisrael from Poland Street. But there will be two released in one week sometime during the next month. So there will be five altogether. Perfect. Thank you very much. That was another fascinating season. So do make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any of the episodes going forth. And as usual, any questions, suggestions, feedback can be sent to podcasts at jle.org.uk. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. Mm-hmm.